Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 28 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill, and if you're tuning in again, thanks very much for listening. If this is your first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy the next, um, looks like it's about an hour or so, (laughs) podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the journals and history of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, and... These were written in the 1840s and they mainly concern his time travelling around Europe as an engineer, working on a railway in Milan in Italy and later on his time travelling across the Atlantic to Mexico where he works in the Mint. So just a few quick things to say. Firstly, if you enjoy listening to the podcast and you want to engage with me in any way, I can be contacted on various social media platforms. Probably the most obvious one is X or Twitter, and that one is Scott of the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. That's the number 3G Grand Tour. By all means, message me on there or leave comments, hopefully nice ones, (laughs) about the podcast. It's always great to get a little bit of interaction going on. And uh, also, if you've got anything you could enlighten me about, because when I do these podcasts, uh, although I do some historical research as much as I can there's some things that I just don't find answers to or I don't find satisfactory answers to so if if there's anything that I mention in them and you think oh I know more about that than him it's always great to hear back and be enlightened and actually then correct maybe the errors that I've made should mention also there's a Facebook page that is at Grand Tour with my great great granddad both on the Twitter site and on the Facebook site there's a few images and things that I put on there which perhaps help illustrate the podcast a bit and then there is the mastodon account as well although it's not exactly going stratospheric as they say that is gg grand tour at scotted at universadon.com so universadon is the server hopefully you'll find me on there if you wish to go through the mastodon route to do your social media chatting just additionally say talking about images illustrating things I have actually edited the first half of an interview that I did with the railway historian Anthony Dawson. That was episode 25 of the podcast. But I've actually done a YouTube video of that now, uh, just of the first half, because it's about half an hour long, and I thought it was better to split it into two halves rather than doing one long hour session. But that's the interview there, and you can see both myself and Anthony talking about things. And I've added quite a few pictures and images and things just to help illustrate that interview if that's of interest to you. So basically, if you go to YouTube, probably have to put in the search engine the whole thing, a grand tour with my great-great-granddad. And on the channel there, you'll see this video of myself and Anthony talking about the very early railways and the sort of trains that William would have driven. There's also another video on there giving a bit of background about the journals as well and how they came into my family's possession and how I prepared them for the podcast and a little bit of background history generally about them as well. And hopefully I should be able to finish editing the second half of the interview with Anthony soon as well, so that'll get posted on there soon too. Right, on to this episode, 28, and the next one. Well, the last one, 27, finished with William... He went on a bit of a trip out of Milan with his daughter to Lodi, which is a town made famous by Napoleon because it was one of his early victories in his military career. And then he then sort of sums up his time working on the railway and how he managed to overcome the various issues that he had to deal with, whether that was bad weather in the winter of 1840 and also a rather, shall we say, corrupt management. (laughs) 
that he was having to deal with as well, not paying the workers properly and things like that. So that's how the last episode finished. In this one, basically, William's got a bit of time now from finishing his time working for two years on the railway, and he's touring a bit more of Milan, or I think he's sort of going around things that he'd like to explain to people in the journals. And this is before then he embarks on the journey back to the UK with his family, going up through Europe from Italy, over the Alps, and along the Rhine River through Germany, and then ending up in Belgium, going to Ostend and across back to the UK. So basically he has this period of time where he's still got a chance to do a bit more sightseeing. So this is it, episode 28 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. February 22nd. Strolled into the church of St Bartholomew today. It has been undergoing a thorough repair, and the interior has been newly painted, the ceiling of which is superb. A group of figures in the centre, representing the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, is executed in the most admirable style. The church is small, but beautiful throughout, and I could have spent a great many hours in admiring its beauties. February 27th. Went for a regular ramble on this day. First, visited the Café alla Scala, but there were no papers arrived from England. I then started through the Piazza Mercanti, past the Ambrosian Library in the Corsa di Porta Virgilina, in this street is the Plateau of the Viscontis, the descendants of the ancient and once powerful family of that name. It is a large building and richly ornamented on the exterior, the style of architecture being of the age of Louis XIV. Passing this, I hastened down the Contrado St. Agnesi. At the corner of this, at the Piazza Sant'Ambrogia, is a very large infantry barracks begun by Napoleon the two sides of which only were finished at the time of his abdication, and it has not yet been completed by the present government. It was to have been named the Caserma di Infantry of Napoleon. It is now called the Caserma di Francesco, after the late Emperor of Austria. I then entered the church of Sant'Ambrogia. This is a very large and ancient structure. Its original form was that of the Greek cross, with nave, chancel and transepts, and at the termination of each transept is a square tower. The roof of the nave, having fallen in many years ago, has never been repaired, and the chancel is now the only part used at present. It is, however, capable of containing a large congregation. It is low and dark. The altar, though neat, has nothing splendid about it. The pulpit is of stone and very large. It is covered with curious and grotesque carved figures. Not far from it is placed a granite column, with a large bronze serpent on the top. Around the sides of the church are a number of altars and curious paintings. The side aisles of the nave are covered in, the central part only being open. On the walls are several fragments of ancient paintings in fresco, and grotesque indeed some of them are, more likely to raise a laugh than to assist as helpers to devotion. In those parts of the wall where the plaster is entirely gone, a great number of Roman antiquities and inscriptions that have been dug up in the city and neighbourhood were inserted here a few years ago. The church of Sant'Ambrogia is a place that would richly repay the antiquarian for a lengthened visit, whether in surveying its architecture, that of the early Gothic, its quaint paintings and decorations, or for those remains of ancient Rome that have been inserted in its walls. My next visit was to the church of San Vittore, at a short distance from Santa Ambrogia. It is a large and truly most splendid edifice, at the time of my visit they were celebrating a mass, so I had not the opportunity of looking about quite as much as I would have wished. This church is of the crucifix form, with a dome in the centre. The dome is panelled and painted with scripture pieces in a most superior manner. The ceiling of the nave is vaulted and panelled also, and painted with figures of saints, angels, etc. The borders of the panels and the columns are closed with elaborate mouldings richly gilt. The high altar is magnificent rare and sumptuous marbles forming both it and the railing in front. The gold and silver vessels are also in the best taste, as well as the candlesticks and candelabra, and are superior in number to any other church in the city. Behind the altar, the form is semicircular, and its decorations accord with other parts of the structure. 
Round the side aisles are the usual number of altars and small chapels, in some of which are placed excellent paintings on canvas, and the ensemble of this church appears to be complete at all points. Close to the church is a caserma di vittore, or barracks for cavalry and infantry, formerly a convent. A large pile of buildings consisting of three large and two small squares, surrounded by buildings of two storeys in height, the lower part being stables, forage sheds, etc., and above the quarters of the soldiers, but they bear no resemblance for cleanliness and order to those in the British dominions. Not far from hence is a great military hospital consisting of two large courts surrounding by buildings of two storeys, with covered arcades in front. There is also a very extensive garden attached to this establishment. The Church of Santa Maria della Grazia, situated in the courser of that name, is a large and ancient edifice, and there was once a very celebrated and rich monastery attached to it, but Napoleon converted the lodgings of the fattened lazy monks into barracks for his soldiers, and that is the purpose they are still applied to. They consist of four courts, and are the quarters of the gendarmerie, Pompey, or fire brigade. That word Pompey, I think, is like pumpers, so I suppose the pumpers of water for fire brigade, and two regiments of infantry. I had often been much puzzled to understand why all the barracks in Milan were close to churches, but I afterwards found out that they had all been monasteries or convents, Napoleon finding it a much readier plan, turning out the monks and quartering his soldiers in their places and building new ones. The Austrian government, finding all these things ready done to their hands, have continued the system, and also hold fast by the revenues. But I am wandering from my subject. This church was at one period very rich in paintings, sculpture and sacred relics, but they have most of them been taken away or destroyed. Of the number that are still left, there was only one that was at all calculated to attract the attention, a figure of the Virgin and Child, with Joseph leaning towards the infant as it is held on the lap of the mother. This is a painting that to be once seen is not readily to be forgotten, breathing the very figures into life the maternal joy and solicitude that clothe the countenance of the Virgin, the outstretched arms of Joseph, so admirably executed, that you may gaze at the work till you expect to see the figures start from the canvas. A great many of the other paintings are of grotesque priests, monks and friars with their shaven crowns, some also of Christ and the Virgin, surrounded by these aforesaid shaven-crowned gentry, or some gaudy tricked-out bishop, with his episcopal mitre and crozier, they almost remind one of the celebrated works of George Cruikshank, and there only wants the inimitable caricatures of the author of the Pickwick Papers to complete the scene. Others again are of a disgusting character, representing the sufferings of the early martyrs. These are subjects which, to my mind, appear to be totally unfit to decorate a temple set apart for the worship of the Most High. On the right of the altar is a small chapel with an arched ceiling, the arches are supported by two columns, placed close to each other in the centre. They are of the Corinthian order, of beautiful marble, fine in their proportions, and the capitals richly gilt. The ceiling is divided into compartments, and painted in fresco with scripture pieces. There are also several beautiful monuments placed in this chapel. It is the only place about this once famous edifice that would bear a lengthened examination. Thirteen altars surround the nave of this church, but they are of the most ordinary kind. Okay, I'm going to stop at this point to say a few things about this extract from the journal that William's written. Firstly, I'll just say a few things about these various churches that he mentions, or that they're often called basilicas now. The first one, St Bartholomew. I don't think the one that's there now is the one that William is talking about. That was knocked down in the latter part of the 19th century. Now, the next few churches and buildings are quite interesting in the sense that they're very ancient churches in Milan. They sort of date back to very early Christianity and St Ambrose. So we're talking about the sort of 300s era. I mean, obviously, they've been built on significantly and changed over the years, but um, they're generally of Romanesque-style architecture. But uh, the first one, the... Santa Ambrogia church that he mentions that was named after St Ambrose who when he first came to Milan he built four churches and this one was originally called the Basilica Martyrdom but then got named after him in his honour 
William goes into a lot of churches, basically. I suppose they are the most significant buildings around at that time, you know. I'm sure if we look at Milan today, you'd look at the skyscrapers and things. But, of course, in William's times, these were the tallest and most prominent buildings around the city. But San Ambrosio is an ancient church, and it's got these two towers that are built as part of it. And when it was built at the time, one was for the monks who would call to Mass, the people to come to take Mass, and the other was built by the canons, who essentially are priests as opposed to monks. And uh, there was a bell tower, but they weren't allowed. Apparently the two were built slightly separately in time, and so the, the canons weren't allowed to ring bells to attract people to prayer until they'd finished building their tower. And it looks like the monks got there first. Also, there's a column outside of it, an ancient column, that's in some way linked to some story about the devil. It's apparently got two big holes in it, this marble column, and it's said to be where the devil bashed his horns against this column. But that's the Church of San Ambrogia. Then he mentions the Church of San Vittoria, which is still there, I think. But he also mentions the Caserma Vittoria, and he discusses this fact that it's now barracks created by Napoleon. And it's quite an interesting moment in time, that, because that's exactly what it was at that time. It had been a place of worship and monastery. And as William's walking around it, or looking at it, the Caserma Vittoria, and it's now called the San Vittorio al Corpo. But when William's looking at it, it is this barracks as he describes. Now, these days, it's been converted again, and it's actually the Leonardo da Vinci Museum of Science and Technology. So that's actually where you go to in Milan to sort of see all the technological developments of that area of Italy dating well back. In fact, it's probably quite a good place if I do ever get to Milan to have a look around for any evidence of the railway that William worked on because it does in fact house various transport exhibitions and railway locomotives are part of it. I've seen a few pictures of railway locos in there. So who knows, there might be one of the engines that William drove. It'd be good if I could go and see that, wouldn't it? So that building, the San Vittorio al Corpo, is this sort of monastery that William's talking about which had been at that time transformed into a barracks by Napoleon and as he says the Austrians often just carried on doing that. I suppose the Austrians as a an army of occupation to some degree in Lombardy Venetia needed barracks to house their soldiers. I mean essentially the soldiers that had been there in Napoleon's occupation were being replaced by Austrian soldiers weren't they I suppose so um, it made sense to just carry on using them that way. Now, this next church that William talks about is really quite interesting. <laughs> now, bear in mind, this is someone's account of their time at that moment in Italy in this church. It's very important to remember that because the church that William says really doesn't have that much to recommend it. He says something like, yes, he says it's a church of the most ordinary kind, I think. He's obviously not that impressed by this church, and he just mentions this one work of art as well of the Christian family, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus all together. The arms outstretched is the most interesting figure of art or work of art that he sees in this church. Now, if you go to that church now, it's probably the site of, I would say, perhaps the second most famous painting in the world or picture and it's the Last Supper. <laughs> and William doesn't mention that at all. <laughs> Which is just curious, isn't it? You think he goes to this church, the Santa Maria della Grazia. It's probably one of the most visited places in Milan. It's possibly one of the most visited places in the world, certainly from a cultural point of view. And um, he doesn't mention that it happens to house the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Not at all. But this is the thing. It's really interesting in a way when you think about a particular moment in time when someone was going somewhere or looking at something and weren't aware of this painting. And also the history of the Last Supper is very, very convoluted. And there were times when it was actually covered up with curtains. Part of the problem with the Last Supper was that when Leonardo da Vinci painted it, it's a fresco, 
the sort of oils and pigments that he used weren't great and they didn't go off really hard. They didn't set really, really well. And this has been a constant problem with the Last Supper over the years. And so it's also made restoration of it very difficult. And also down the years, there's been things that they've tried to do to restore it or look after it that haven't worked very well. And at one time, they put some curtains in front of it. They thought that would protect it. But actually, that wasn't great because it was keeping the moisture in the walls and that meant it deteriorated more. There have been some pretty cack-handed attempts that I think you would describe it at uh, restoring it over the years. During the Second World War, it was mainly covered up with sandbags that were put in front of it. And in fact, this church was badly bombed in the Second World War. And luckily they had put these sandbags in front of the painting because they did actually protect it from the worst ravages of the bombs. So really, I can only assume that at that time when William is going round the church... At that time, maybe it wasn't really considered to be that great a work of art. Maybe it was very faint and not great to look at. So it was possibly covered up with curtains. Who knows? <laughs> and also, bearing in mind, this is not that long after Napoleon as well. So the church as a whole had been, as William mentions, had at one time had lots of artworks in it and a lot of them had gone. And this was all part of the consequence of essentially what they call Napoleon spoilations. That's as a French term of it. But it's basically Napoleon's looting and acquisition of art as he went around Europe conquering nations and duchies and places like Lombardy, Venetia. He had a systematic policy of taking artworks, looting artworks and taking them back to be exhibited in Paris and whatever. You know, it was kind of a representation, if you like, of French power by acquiring all these objects. And, of course, we did it ourselves in the British Empire, most famously the Olga Marbors is the prime example of historic thing that we nabbed. And Napoleon did much the same thing. I mean, when you look at the history of it, it was kind of a very systematic way of did it. They, they were often done under treaties and things that he acquired these things. But the Santa Maria della Grazia had obviously suffered quite a lot from Napoleonic looting of the artworks in it, which again would suggest when William's there, much of that had gone. Some of it has been returned, but at that time it wouldn't have been. So, yeah, it's just a really, really interesting that he only mentions not the Last Supper at all. Um, and it is definitely this church he talks about because of the history and looking back at as Napoleon does use it as a barracks at some time as well. But the only thing he mentions is this one, <laughs> this one particular painting, which I think it's been quite hard to track down, but I think it's a painting that is in the St. Joseph Chapel of the church. I should actually just point out these days, the nave bit where the Last Supper is, is sort of separate now or kept separate from the rest of the church. So the rest of the St. Ambrogio is still like a working church. And they've separated the nave bit because it's run by the Italian government, I think, and the other bit's run by the church. And the Last Supper bit is its own kind of museum in its own right. I haven't been there, but this is how I understand it. But this painting that William is so impressed by... I think is in the St. Joseph's Chapel. And I think it's a picture called The Holy Family with St. Catherine of Alexandria. And in it, you've got Joseph and he's got an apple in his hand. And um, the baby Jesus is he's sort of looking at this apple and the baby Jesus is on Mary's lap. And um, the, the baby is looking expectantly at this apple that's in Joseph's hand. And St. Catherine is behind them both and the baby. Now, this is by an artist called Bordone. And as far as I can understand, this is the one that William is mentioning that he finds so enchanting. The trouble is, it's actually quite hard to track down the particular one he's talking about, because you can imagine this theme of the Christian family of Mary, Joseph and Jesus and St. Catherine as well. It's quite a common theme for painters of that time to do. So there are lots of versions of it. But this one that I'm looking at, Joseph is in kind of an orange attire and he's got what looks like an apple in his hand and the baby's reaching out, looking very expectantly at this apple. Sorry, it's been a really rather long 
section to talk about things. But the last thing I want to talk about is this mention of George Cruikshank, the illustrator of Dickens' works. Now, this is what I remembered from before. I knew that William had read Dickens, and this is why I knew he'd read Dickens, because he makes this reference to George Cruikshank and his illustrations of his works. Funnily enough, he mentions the Pickwick Papers, which um, is one of the ones that George Cruikshank didn't do the illustrations for, but he did work on a number of Dickens's novels as the illustrator. But he was also well known as a cartoonist or caricaturist. Funny enough, talking about Napoleonic looting of art, there's one by George Cruikshank, a caricature or cartoon of that, of him napoleon grabbing all these artifacts and statues and his soldiers doing it and that's by george crookshank so he was famous for his caricatures as well as the works that he did to accompany dickens work it's funny in a way william doesn't directly use the name dickens and just says the author of the pickwick papers now there is actually quite a good reason for this and it's probably because william may well not have known what Dickens's actual real name was because at this time it was very very early on in his career and he tended to write under his pen name or pseudonym of Boz and in fact Dickens's first book is called Sketches by Boz and George Cruikshank did in fact do the illustrations for that book as you may know Dickens's works were initially published in periodicals in episodes so the both sketches of Boz and to some degree the Pickwick papers are assemblages of these stories that appeared every week in magazines. So the pen name Boz sounds a bit convoluted really but he chose it because apparently he used to call his brother Moses and his brother couldn't really say the word Moses very well he used to say Boses and that became Boz and that's why Charles Dickens chose that as a pseudonym when he was very young, when he only just began writing as a novelist as opposed to a journalist. And the other interesting thing about that is that he actually started using the pen name The Inimitable Boz. And actually that then just became The Inimitable. And in fact, William does use that word. He says The Inimitable Author of The Pickwick Papers. So it just goes to show it's exactly at that moment in time when Dickens's work was being first published, but he was yet to drop his pseudonym and go under his actual name. So obviously these are books and stories that William must have read, but he very likely at that point didn't know what Charles Dickens's name was. George Cruikshank, I think he did Oliver Twist, and that was about it, I think, in terms of illustrations that he did for Dickens. But later on, they actually fell out because Cruikshank suggested that he'd actually instigated or come up with the stories for the Pickwick Papers and Oliver Twist and sketches by Boz, which I suppose to some degree it was this thing where there was a slight rivalry between who was the more important person that the public were looking at. Were they looking at the pictures or were they reading the stories? You know, were, were they more interested in the pictures and illustrations rather than the stories? But there was this sort of falling out that Dickens had with Cruikshank and apparently had it with a later illustrator of his who also suggested he came up with some of Dickens's stories as well. So uh, it wasn't a great history there when it came to his illustrators. Actually, quite recently, I only just realised that Dickens himself, only a few years later in 1844, did a sort of grand tour of Italy. And there's a works of Dickens that's not really very well known. It's called Pictures from Italy about his time in that country which I would quite like to read although sometimes I think maybe I wouldn't because it's probably written rather a lot better than William's account of things anyway that's the end of this bit sorry it's really dragged on leaving the church I directed my steps across the furrow the large open space in front of the castle and though yet in the month of February, the heat of the sun was very great, and the trees are already beginning to manifest signs of returning to vegetation. Whilst around us tower the mountains of Savoy, Switzerland, the Tyrol, their summits covered with snow. March 5th. I have ceased all connection with the railroad here today, and have now got nothing to do but prepare my return to old England. March 6th. This morning I went for a ramble on the ramparts to the church of San Michel alla Fapone. This is now known as the Rotunda della Bassana, 
and it's also the uh, Museum of Children in Milan now. This is a curious place. The church itself is in the form of a cross and of considerable size, with a dome in the centre. It is surrounded by a covered cloister of circular form and of very large size. This cloister has four iron gates corresponding to the door of the church. There are grated windows on the outside, and the inner part is supported by granite columns of the Tuscan order. The ceiling is vaulted and groined, and the pavement is of granite. The space betwixt the cloister and the church is covered with grass, and was in former ages used as a burying place, but that practice has long since been discontinued in all the continental cities. Leaving this, I proceeded up the Strada alla Fopone, and at a short distance I came to another old church dedicated to Santa Maria, but now converted into a sugar refinery. It had at one time been a fine building, but the windows have been blocked up by rough brickwork, and the whole edifice is fast falling into ruin. In the same street are two more churches, Santa Barbara and Santa Sofia, the latter of which belongs to the hospital for destitute female children. This is a very excellent institution, and reflects great credit on its founders, the late Contessa de Trielsa, and its present supporters. Its object is to receive female children, from the youngest infant to those of twelve years of age, who may be left destitute either by the death of one or both parents, by desertion or any other means. They receive a good education, are taught embroidery, the fabrication of shawls, straw bonnets, etc., and some are fitted for female teachers in schools, governesses, etc. The range for female employment in Milan is rather limited. Of the class of respectable female servants, same as you see in England, there is none, as there are hundreds of houses in the city where no female servant whatever is kept, that work being all done by the male part of the population. And I know of many families who keep a carriage and a pair of horses where one man acts as groom, coachman, footman, cook, chambermaid and everything. Now, you see, John Ball, that is the way to be a swell and do it cheap. But then, John, you are rather fastidious. You do not like your ladies to be shown to bed by a male servant, or assisted to dress the next morning by one of that sex. And that is the reason why a continental can beat you hollow at making a display on the public promenade at one-fourth the cost. Right, stopping here to talk about a couple of things that William has mentioned in this section. Obviously, he's going from what is now the first church he sees, which is, as I said, called the Rotunda della Bassana, which is now the Museum for Children in Milan. So in this area, he's walking along this street. I've got a, an 1840s map, which is fairly helpful in working things out in terms of where William is discussing which location he's in. He then walks along the Strada alla Fopone. So he then comes across some churches in this other church, which he says is the hospital for destitute female children. This whole area actually has a sort of long history, I would say, of being a medical area. In fact, very nearby is the oldest hospital in Milani. Ospedale Maggiore. So I think probably this demonstrates that this area at that time was evolving into being an area of Milan concerned with medical things, really, I suppose. This hospital for destitute female children, I've had quite a lot of difficulty finding out much about it, other than to say he makes a reference to it being an excellent institution that reflects great credit on its founders, the late Contessa de Trivuzio. Well, again... This is a bit vague. The Contessa di Trivizio, there is a lady called um, Cristina Trivizio di Belgiozio. Oh dear, I can't really say it. I, I, anyway. Cristina Trivizio di Belgioioso. But I don't think it's her, but it may be linked to her mother, who would have been the late person by that time. Cristina was alive at this time, and she actually had a very interesting life the Countess. She, from a young age, became involved in the movement for Italian unification and then really became one of its major champions for it. And uh, later on in life, she wrote interesting articles and works about her travels abroad. But she's quite a significant figure, I think, 
in Italian history, and certainly she was uh, very much involved in the fight for Italian unification, which to some degree was led by the aristocracy and middle-class intellectuals of Italy, really. So um, she kind of fitted into that strata of society that uh, was trying to get Italian unification achieved. So Christina, although she would have been alive very much at the time William's there, she spends quite a lot of time in Paris as well. And when she's in Paris, her house becomes a bit of a meeting place for authors and historians and other people like Balzac and uh, Victor Hugo and that. And so she becomes quite a figurehead. I don't know, not quite the right word, but she's certainly heavily involved in the movement of Italian unification. Now, having said all that, I don't think that William is referring to her when he says the late Contessa de Truzio because she's not late, is she? She's still alive when William is looking at this hospital. But all I can say is that this whole area, really, I think, to me, it seems that this was the beginning of its evolution into a medical area of Milan. And as I say, the hospital, the oldest hospital in Milan, the Hospital Maggiore, I think its origins date right back to 1456 and... Uh, another one of the Duke Schwarzers that was there at the time William's discussing. Just want to say very briefly that William talked about all the servants in Milan being male. Now, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how true this is. I had a very brief look at some statistics of men and women involved in domestic service in Italy. I mean, admittedly, it's not specific to Milan, but in Italy... And uh, I wouldn't say that the male percentage seems in any particular way higher than the female percentage, other than to say that it could be possibly that because Milan was becoming more industrialised, there was a slight tendency for women to be more involved in manufacturing, weaving, cloth-related manufacturing, that sort of thing, those kind of industries and that was always seen as a better move than working in domestic service. So that might well be what's going on here rather than it being a cultural thing, I think, that William suggests it is. It's very hard to say because the whole thing of service and servants, William is looking at it, I think, from a very aspiring middle-class gentleman point of view. I'm sure William had a few servants himself, but of course he wouldn't have had the money to have loads of servants, so I suspect he maybe had one or two you know, a cook and a housemaid, that sort of thing. And uh, I don't know why he seems to be enviously looking at how cheap it is for the well-to-do of Milan to uh, look like swells, as he says, on the cheap by just having one male servant. I mean, the whole thing really reeks of just horrible class culture, doesn't it? This idea, obviously, as a middle-class person, it was desirable to have servants because it demonstrated your status. There are mentions of people being middle class and sort of actually making financial sacrifices just so they could have a servant to prove their status. And William really reflecting this attitude that as a middle class person, you should have servants, <laughs> but they are a necessary evil. This is another term that's sometimes suggested in this era, or oh, they're necessary it does go to show how much status was wrapped up in this whole thing. But unfortunately, the poor people who were the victims or the consequence of middle class people wanting to appear of higher status was the poor, lowly, downtrodden servants who had a pretty rubbish time. And perhaps in Milan, it does suggest, you know, if you could get work in a factory or in some sort of trade, that would be better than being a servant. Certainly for servants in middle-class households, you know, your prospects were a lot less secure. If you were a servant in a big aristocratic household where there were loads of servants, footmen, butlers, housemaids, cooks, your job was more secure and you had a, a much more reliable income and reliable future. But for those poor people who were the single or pair of servants having to work for a middle-class family, you know, you had to do everything and you were badly treated. You were generally thought as a bit untrustworthy. So it's really not a great reflection, I think, on William to say, you know, if you want to look swell and do it on the cheap, go to Italy and you only need one manservant, whereas I've got to pay for <laughs> in London for a maid and a cook and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's a curious attitude, not a very pleasant one. But there you are. 
Charles Dickens had servants at this time. It was considered the norm and it was considered a way of demonstrating your status in society. So that was obviously quite important to them at that time. One of the few things you could say that was just good about the Industrial Revolution was that in a way it did create jobs for people to move into and move away from being domestic servants. It's all relative, you know, if you were a servant at least you had some sort of income, but certainly for those involved just looking after smaller households and and the middle class families, I think it was a much tougher deal than if you were involved in being a servant in this sort of Downton Abbey style situation that we're familiar with being shown on TV or even the, the upstairs downstairs thing, which is being repeated on television late at night now. And I, I hated upstairs downstairs when I was a kid. I never watched it. Now, oh dear, I think it's a sad sign of increasing age. I end up watching upstairs downstairs <laughs> repeats and enjoying them. Oh, what's going on now in the household? <laughs> Sorry, I'll shut up now and get back to the journal. I next proceeded to the church of Santa Maria della Passione and stood gazing for some time on the beautiful sculptures that adorn its principal front. The centre compartment representing the descent from the cross is a sublime piece of sculpture, both in design and execution. There are also two others that deserve particular notice. Christ, scourged with rods, and the other, binding of his hands, and placing the crown of thorns upon his head. I now entered the church and gazed for some time, lost in bewildered astonishment at the interior of this noble edifice, before I could descend as to any particulars of its adornments. In the centre of the church, the towering dome is seen, a graceful light streaming from its summit, giving the fullest effect to the splendid paintings that cover the lower part. These are in compartments, and represent the different scenes of the trial and the passion of the Saviour. There is Christ taken before Pontius Pilate, and also the scene before Cassus, the high priest. The scourging with rods, the binding of hands, and the putting on the crown of thorns the procession from the city of Mount Cavalry, Christ bearing the cross, the crucifixion, the descent from the cross. The figures in this are peculiarly natural and faithful. The burial of Christ in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the soldiers casting lots for his garments, and lastly their visit to the sepulchre and their astonishment at finding Christ had risen, most beautifully and faithfully depicted. There is also another large painting below the dome of the Ascension, another of Christ washing the feet of his disciples, the third of the Last Supper, and the fourth, the Feast of Pentecost. These are on the four immense columns that support the dome. Four galleries stretch across these arches. In two of them are organs of fine tone and great power, the others for the use of the members of the Academy of Music, who often perform in this church. Against each of the columns of the nave are placed portraits of all the archbishops of Milan from the foundation of the archbishopric, to the present period. The ceiling of the nave is vaulted and painted with the principal events in the life of the Saviour. The various small chapels and altars that are placed in the side aisles are rich in paintings of a far better character than I have met in any other church in the city. The high altar corresponds with the other parts of the structure, and in the semicircular space behind it, some excellent paintings upon which the light is so effectively thrown, both upon them and at the altar as to induce the visitor for some moments to think they are placed in the open air. This church, taken altogether, is one of the best and most gratifying to the visitor I have seen in Milan, rich without being gaudy, combining the utmost grandeur with the greatest solidity. Leaving this, I prepared to retrace my steps homeward, passing through the Borgia Monteforte. In this street is the palazzo of the Lieutenant Governor of Lombardy, a large and fine building with a noble pediment in the Doric style of architecture. It was erected during the Empire and is a building admirably suited to the purpose for which it was designed, containing besides all the apartments suitable to the First Minister of the Crown all the offices requisite for the transaction of the multivarious businesses committed to his charge. The Lieutenant Governor of Lombardy is the same as the Home Secretary of the British Government, and the Minister of Interior in France, but with considerably enlarged powers. He is Minister of Public Education, 
of Public Worship and the Departments of Trade, Commerce and Manufacture, Postmaster General, the Superintendents of Roads, Canals and Bridges, Railroads and Police, Hospitals, etc. In fact, with every department connected with the internal affairs of Lombardy. There is no Foreign Secretary, that business being all transacted in Vienna, and though styled the Kingdom of Lombardy Veneto, it is merely a province of Austria. Though according to the constitution, one of the royal family must reside in the kingdom as viceroy, who holds his court alternately at Milan and Venice, Milan being considered the chief capital. Aside from the lieutenant governor for Lombardy, there is also one for the province of Venice, who is also the Lord High Admiral, having in addition to his other business the superintendence of all naval and mercantile affairs. The Palace of the Convention is a building of considerable extent near the public garden, and fronting the canal. It was erected during the consulate of Napoleon for the assembling of the deputies of the Italian Republic, but is now used as the offices for public accounts, or exchequer, of the Lombardo-Veneto kingdom. This edifice consists of two courts surrounded by buildings, covered arcades running around them both. At the bottom of the inner one is the Hall of the Convention, a room once well fitted up and excellently adapted for the purpose, but now unused and falling into decay. In fact, the whole building looks silent, lonesome and deserted, grass growing over the pavement of the courts and the cement dropping from the walls through damp and neglect. OK, this is the last section of the journal I'm going to talk about in this episode. So I'll just mention some of the landmarks that William is talking about here as he tours around this slightly eastern side of central Milan. First of all, this church that he seems to particularly like, the Santa Maria della Pazione. It is quite distinctive looking. It's got this impressive entrance and facade where... As William mentions, there's these sculptures of various scenes of the life of Christ, and they're in these panels. They are more like reliefs, I would say, but they're quite large, and they were by a sculptor called Giuseppe Rosnati, and he also worked on Milan Cathedral as well. But along the side elevations of the church, you've got these semicircular walls, where I suppose inside they'd be various chapels individually along the side of it. And it has got this quite big dome in the centre of it, although from the outside it's uh, more looks more like a kind of hexagonal-shaped structure. But when you go inside, obviously you look up and it's a very impressive dome. Inside there's lots of artwork as well, as William describes it. The main artwork is by an artist called Ambrogio Bergagnone, I don't know if you remember, in a previous episode we talked about a very big church in Satosa. Well, he worked on that church extensively, but he also worked on these frescoes that are in this church. And there are also lots of other, as William mentions, scenes from the life of Christ depicted in this church by a few other artists as well. I think perhaps the most impressive bit as you go in looking at it is around these big four columns, as he says, that support the dome. And then there's lots of artwork on those as well. Now, William, in his description of it, he briefly mentions the two big organs that are in the church and says that the Milan Academy of Music play here often. Well, actually, probably the main reason for that is it's virtually next door. In fact, it's sort of adjoining this church. It's now known as the Giuseppe Verdi Milan Conservatory of Music and it was actually established in 1807. So I think what happened was there was a bit of this church, the cloistered bit, that was then taken over to be turned into a music academy in Milan. And down the years it's had many famous composers and musicians study there. Probably the most famous is Puccini, but also... If you want a more contemporary person, if you know your classical music, you might know a conductor called Ricardo Muti, who's been a conductor of the Royal Philharmonic and orchestras all around the world. But he studied there as well. There are lots and lots of various 
classical pianists, singers and composers who've studied at the Milan Conservatory of Music down the years. So it's right next door to this church. And I say it probably was part of the church before it got assigned. And I think this actually was certainly during the time of Napoleon's control over Milan that this Academy of Music was created there, whether it was under instruction from Napoleon or whether he had much knowledge of it, I don't know. But it's down the years produced many, many famous musicians and composers. The next building that I thought I'd talk about is this, as William calls it, the Palazzo of the Lieutenant Governor of Lombardy. Now, interestingly, this in a way is a building that still has the same role. This is one of these moments where having this 1840s map was quite convenient as to actually identifying this building because I could compare it with the modern day map and I found this building because I'd had trouble before. Now it's called the Territorial Office of the government of Milan and it's basically home to someone who's described as the prefecture of the Milan area so he's essentially is like the governor of Milan now but obviously under a modern Italian government arrangement as opposed to an Austrian one. I mean I wouldn't call it that interesting a building, uh, William describes it as being ideal for the purpose. Um, it's number 31 on this street, The um, well now it's the Contessa Monteforte so its name's changed slightly, but it was, as I say, looking at the 1840s map, was quite convenient to uh, identify it today. It is a long building with a long facade, and there's a fairly grand entranceway with four, looks like, Doric columns and an entablature for the main entrance of it. But as I say, it houses essentially the governor's office of the area of Milan these days. At the time when William was there, the governor in charge was actually someone called Franz von Hartig. Um, quite an interesting character because he was, it turned out, quite a liberal politician. And uh, when a few years later Austria had its own revolution, he was quite a supporter of the Austrian revolution amongst its own citizens. I will just say a little bit about how the Lombardy-Venetia kingdom was being ruled by Austria at this time. William's summing up of it is essentially correct about these two regions, if you like. There's the Lombardy region and the Venice region, and they each have a lieutenant governor. But there's quite an interesting point I thought here reading about it, because as we've often said how after a time Austria's influence over Italy began to become disliked by the population. But there's quite an interesting point reading up on the history here that's made is that Italian was still generally the main language used for day-to-day -day administration of the region and then German was used as they call it the commanding language but day-to-day -day, the administrative language was Italian and there's quite an interesting, and you could say it's a sort of almost a strategic move on the part of the Austrians, that middle class Italians and intelligentsia, I suppose you might use this word, they could do quite well in the Austrian civil service in the Lombardy-Venetia region. You know, they could scale to reasonable heights in it and become fairly senior. But Austria reserved the very, very top jobs like this lieutenant governor, like Franz von Hartig, for their own stool pigeons or what you want to call it or for their own government people like Franz von Hartig and there was a particular reason for this and I'm just going to read this extract so this is uh, an Austrian general called Karl von Schurrls anyway in his memoirs he's writing about how Austria administered Lombardy Venetia and he says the Austrian administration enjoyed the support of the rural population and the middle class educated at the universities of Pavia and Padua who were able to pursue careers in the administration Von Schoenels further noted that the Austrians mistrusted and refused the local aristocrats from high government offices as they traditionally had rejected university education and had been able to gain their leadership positions because of their family background. Consequently, the aristocrats saw themselves deprived of the possibility of establishing themselves in the management of society and supported the wars of independence against the Austrians. So just coming back to this thing we've sort of said before, Italian unification and, if you like, revolution didn't come out so much out of a situation as in the French Revolution where, you know, there were the downtrodden poor who were starving and hungry and so forth. I mean, I know revolution and unification aren't quite the same things, but there are similarities. 
Italian unification really came out of uh, a slightly more higher class society or the slightly more upper middle class and aristocrats wanting to gain control again. And of course, obviously, as well, there was a general popularity of it, I would say. Otherwise, it would never have happened. But it's interesting how the Austrians, obviously, almost as a way of maintaining their support, ran Lombardy-Venetia in this way and didn't promote Italian aristocrats to high areas of office. And actually, the Lombardy-Venetian kingdom does go on for quite a lot longer it's one of the last bits to get Italian unification because it goes on to 1866. So there's still quite a few years where it's under the rule of Austria. But yeah, I just thought it was quite an interesting point looking at that history. Now, the next building I was going to discuss is the Palace of the Convention, as William calls it. That is still there as well. That is now known as the Palazzo de Sonato. Um, and it actually houses the state archives of Milan now. But at the time William was looking at it, indeed, it was being used by the Austrians as the sort of accounting office for that area of Lombardy, Venetia. So William, exactly as he says in the uh, journals, is describing it for this purpose. Like a lot of these buildings, William often says, oh, it was created by Napoleon to do this. It's not often really the case. It's not like they've been built from scratch by Napoleon to be used as these buildings or for these various purposes. Often down the years, there are existing buildings that have been heavily transformed and altered for those roles. So this is an example of that. The building actually dates back well before Napoleon's time. But during Napoleon's time, let's broadly say running what he created as the Kingdom of Italy, that was the purpose that he had used this building for as a senate so it was kind of a parliament i mean i think probably with most things in napoleon it was almost more of a, a nod to some kind of form of democracy but um, let's face it we know where the buck stops when it came to running things with napoleon you know he'd create these sort of things under the uh, auspices of there being some sort of democratic element to them but uh, that could quite easily get ignored if uh, things didn't go his way i'm sure But I say it's uh, now the place where the archives concerning Milan are held. And it's actually been that for quite a long time, I think since about 1859. But interestingly, outside was the first ever post box in this bit of Italy. And it is still there. So that's the last building I was going to discuss in this section of the journal. So that's the end of this episode, 28. It has gone on a little bit longer than I would have liked, but there ended up being quite a lot of things to talk about. And as I've said often before, this is the nature of the podcast. I do try to keep it at the maximum of an hour. So <laughs> this one's been at the maximum. But I thought it was a, an interesting episode anyway. I thought there were some quite good things to talk about note particularly William going around the church where the Last Supper is and not discussing it. It's funny because he does actually mention a draft or pre-version of it in the journals of the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci earlier on. So it's an artwork that he must have been to some degree familiar with, but he just, I suppose he just went around and he didn't happen to see it in that church. As I say, it could well have been covered up by curtains. I mean, what you don't see, you can't talk about, can you? So there you are. Then, of course, there was a thing about Dickens as well, which actually I, I kind of almost, I don't know, stupidly, I'd kind of forgotten that Boz was Dickens's pen name or pseudonym. So I nearly got that whole bit of research completely wrong, and it kind of got me off on the wrong foot. But, of course, his name was Boz. He was famous early on as Boz. But then, having done the research and then looking at the dates, I realised, oh, that is why William says and the author of the Pickwick Papers, because it's more than likely he didn't actually know Dickens's name at that time. Because I remember the first time I read that, I thought, why does he just say Dickens's story, the Pickwick Papers, and mention George Cruikshank rather than, than Dickens himself? You know, it did seem a bit curious. <laughs> but that's why, because he didn't know Dickens's actual name. So I hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. 
The next one will be a bit more of William touring Milan and then near the end of that one I think he'll be preparing to go on his journey back but there's still quite a lot he has to discuss about Milan and Milanese culture and things. I think whether this actually chronologically happened this way or when he was just writing the journals, he kind of almost, it's like he decided that whole period where he was actually working on the railway, he doesn't really discuss very much, as I've said rather frustratingly, if you're a railway historian. He parks that bit aside and then starts discussing the buildings and culture around Milan. I'm sure he'd probably seen all these things as he was working on the railway as well during his two years. So maybe he's conjoining it all into one lump at the end of discussing his stay there. Anyway, that is the end of the episode. I do hope you enjoyed it. Do tune in again to the next one. There was a bit of a gap between this one and the last one, but as I often say, it gets quite difficult to complete them. And also editing the video took a time as well. But do tune into that if you'd like to see that discussion that I had with Anthony about things. And I say I should have the second half of that finished quite soon. Do subscribe to the podcast. Do tell your friends who are, might be into history, who might be into Victoriana, who might be into all sorts of enjoyable things of the past about the podcast. And lastly, if you have been, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.